Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and here's some exciting news. We are now less than a week away from the first day of spring. Yeah, we're more than a little eager to say farewell to the slushy, snowy weather we've seen over the past few months. So with that in mind, we're calling today's show Cabin Fever, chock full of some of our favorite Metro Connection stories set in the great outdoors. We'll hike the Appalachian Trail to the new location of an old cabin, and we'll go for a boat ride to a Chesapeake Bay island that may soon disappear. Plus, we'll visit the ruins of a once-thriving quarry in Montgomery County, and we'll hang out with some young anglers on the banks of the Anacostia River. But first, you can't celebrate the arrival of spring in D.C. without talking about our big blowout celebration of the season, the National Cherry Blossom Festival, commemorating the 3,000 cherry trees the mayor of Tokyo gave to Washington back in 1912. From March 20th through April 13th, visitors will encounter all sorts of cherry-related cheer, from cherry-inspired foods to cherry blossom yoga. Now, traditionally, you might associate D.C.'s cherry blossoms with the Tidal Basin. After all, that's where you'll find more than 3,700 Yoshino cherry trees with their delicate pink-white blossoms surrounding the 107-acre reservoir. But the Tidal Basin isn't the only place to see flowering cherries this season. Among other spots in town, the U.S. National Arboretum has about 1,600 cherry trees, representing roughly 450 varieties. And starting next Thursday, the Arboretum is offering a self-guided tour of those trees. It's called Beyond the Tidal Basin, introducing other great flowering cherry trees. In 2013, the blossoms peaked a wee bit earlier than this year, so last March, I got a sneak preview of the tour with Margaret Pooler, who's been breeding plants at the Arboretum for 16 years. So exactly what kind of flowering cherry is this? This tree is an Okami cherry tree, and this one is special because it's one of the earliest blooming ones that we have. You can see today it's not even mid-March, and it's almost in full bloom now. Everything else is still brown, but here they are giving us a hint that spring is just around the corner. Can you describe this shade of pink? It's, I, I, I'm not sure really how to describe it. Well, the Okami and some of the other ones are a kind of a darker pink than what we're used to seeing in the, like, for example, the Tidal Basin cherries. And part of that is because um, one of their parents, it's a species called Prunus campanulata, the Taiwan cherry, that has a really dark, deep pink. Should we move on to the next, next yeah. spot? So which tree are we looking at now? So this tree is kind of an interesting one. It's called Autumnalis rosea. And it's special because it blooms in the spring with all the rest of the flowering cherries. And you can see it's got lots and lots of flower buds on it right now. They're still pretty tight because it's not an early one. But what's neat about it is that it also flowers in the fall. Um, not nearly as big of a bloom as the spring bloom, but um, it does give a, a pretty decent fall display. So it's kind of nice. One year, I think it was in full bloom at Thanksgiving. So visitors who happened to come by here then got to see a Thanksgiving flowering cherry. Not something you'd expect. Definitely not. Once it does bloom, what do the blossoms look like? Um, the blossoms are a kind of light pink, whitish with pink tinge, semi-double. That means they have somewhere around maybe 20 petals per flower as opposed to the true doubles, which are some of the, like the Kwanzan that you see, the popular Kwanzan cherry. That's a true double where it's got, you know, upwards of 25 or more petals per flower versus the single blooms, which are only five petals. Yoshino cherries are a good example of that. I suspect that when most people or when a lot of people think about 
flowering cherries. They have one particular image in their head. So this is this is just amazing for me to hear about and see so many different varieties. It is. It's it's pretty amazing. I think if you walk by the research collection, which is also one of our stops on the tour, you really can see all in one place that diversity of flowering cherries because any time during the month and a half that we have this tour going on, you'll see things that have either they're just coming into bloom, things are in full bloom that have finished bloom and are already starting to set seed. So you'll see every stage of bloom, plus different habits, everything from short shrubby plants to tall tree types, different colors from white to the deep pink that we talked about. So yeah, I think this is a great way to just really come to appreciate all that flowering cherries have. Okay, well, I'll show you one more. It's a weeping cherry that when you come to the Arboretum, you really can't miss if it's in full bloom because everyone's going to be flocked around it. So kind of like a weeping willow, but with the cherry blossom? Exactly, exactly. All right, let's go. Okay, there aren't any blossoms on these yet, but they are stunning. Yeah, even without being in bloom, even when all you see are branches, just the silhouette of these trees are absolutely amazing. Um, When they're in full bloom, they're just beautiful white cascading petals that when you're standing under there, you know, you can imagine the whole, the effect, and a few blossoms fall around your head, and it really is kind of magical. What's the tree's official name? Um, Officially, it's Prunus subertella pendula. Um, meaning pendulous, the weeping. So, Margaret, given that you've been working with the cherry trees for so long here at the Arboretum, what would you say is the significance of the cherry tree to D.C.? Well, I think the cherry trees are special, especially in Washington, D.C., for a couple reasons. Um, One, I think they're so constant and predictable. So, you know, we tend to get so busy and so overscheduled and go, go, go that The cherries, you know, they're only in bloom for a week or maybe 10 days. And so it kind of forces you to just pause, take a break from all that, and stop and enjoy them because they're not going to be there very long. That was Margaret Pooler of the U.S. National Arboretum. You can check out the self-guided tour Beyond the Tidal Basin, introducing other great flowering cherry trees starting next Thursday. For more information and to see photos of many varieties of flowering cherries, visit our website, metroconnection.org. All right, so we'll leave D.C. now and head about 75 miles southwest to Virginia's Shenandoah National Park. At the edge of the park, at the foot of one of the most popular hiking trails in the region, you'll find a house. But not just any house. It's a log cabin built in 1878 in the rolling farmland near Hancock, Maryland. So if it was built in Maryland, what is it doing in Virginia, 100 miles south of its original home? Jacob Benston has the answer. John Corwith is standing near a pile of 135-year-old logs trying to make sense of a list scrawled on a sheet of ruled paper. The guy that wrote the drawing when we were taking it apart isn't here. The list has a number for each log, but which log goes where? When I was off doing something else, somebody squashed the plan that I had, which was to draw every log and where it's at, and just make this list of where the logs are stacked. It's a crisp, bright autumn day at the foot of Old Rag Mountain in Shenandoah National Park. There's a constant stream of hikers heading up for the nine-mile loop, but Corwith 
doesn't have time to hike. I've never been to the top of Old Rag. I've been coming out here for two years, and I haven't, I haven't hiked the mountain yet. Corwith and a dozen or so volunteers with the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club are hard at work rebuilding this cabin that eventually they'll be able to rent out to hikers right here next to the trailhead. The project started two years ago when the cabin's owner got in touch with the trail club. Yeah, my name is Laurie Birch. When Laurie Birch bought a parcel of land in Hancock, Maryland, the previous owners told her she'd probably need to demolish the derelict old cabin on the property. Take it down or even just burn it down or whatever. But she soon found it was actually in pretty good shape. Wood siding had protected the logs from the elements. I found logs that looked like they had just been in pristine condition. But still, it would cost thousands of dollars to restore. I just really wasn't quite sure what to do because I could not afford to put that kind of money in it. And yet, I didn't want to see it just deteriorate and fall down. A friend suggested she donate it to the trail club. A couple guys from the club came and looked at the cabin and the location, surrounded by farmland, not hiking trails. When they reported back, they said, great cabin, bad location. I came in and said, can we move it? John Corwith again. Here was a structure that had stood since 1878, and I thought, those logs are still good. They're, you know, wouldn't it be great to reuse them? So last year, a crew of trail club members descended on the property and, like a busy ant colony, deconstructed the cabin bit by bit. Lou Schutze was there. It was quite a job. First, they tore out all the interior structures. Walls and everything, and they were just full of, uh, full of animals and bees and wasps and everything else. And then um, we had to get it down to the bare logs and, and then took it down a log at a time. But that was the easy part. On this day, in the shadow of old rag, things aren't going too well for the volunteer construction yeah. crew. Put one on the end, uh-huh. then figure out where the other one is. I think you can handle it, right? Yeah. It's clear <laughs> as the ears on a chicken. <laughs> hey, well, there'll be a little something extra in your paycheck. Yeah, what's two times zero, <laughs> zero. Now, or three times zero? Great. Or... <laughs> you have all the holes drilled along the middle? Eddie Murawski has spent a frustrating day fixing an unfortunate mistake. There's vents that are required on the foundation, and somehow one was missed. In September, the crew finished the lovely stone and concrete foundation, only to discover they didn't leave enough holes for vents under the cabin. So Murawski has spent most of his Saturday in the dark crawl space, drilling and sawing and chiseling and hammering through the thick concrete. It's this, 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 this thick, it's inches thick, plus there's rebar in there. You know what rebar is? I think there's a piece of rebar right in the middle of this, holding it together. <laughs> we've had more problems today than we've had the whole time we've been building. We had to send somebody off to buy gas because we don't have a spare gas can. The generator stopped, the air compressor died. But we're having fun. Mark Allen is working on the subfloor above the foundation. I love it up here, being in the woods. I love uh, building things, so I'm right at home and happy. The new cabin won't be exactly the same as the original. The crew's adding an addition for a kitchen and bathroom, and they're redesigning it to be handicapped accessible. Lori Birch, who donated the cabin, is pleased it will be available to as many people as possible. As much as I would have loved to have had it and had it as a wonderful structure on my property, I would have been the only one using it, you know, other than me and family and friends. There's no date yet for when the cabin will be finished. When it is, it will be one of some 40 that the club rents to hikers, mostly along the Appalachian Trail. And in this busy location, it's likely to be one of the most popular. I'm Jacob Fenston. Want to see the reconstructed cabin for yourself? We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org.
time for a break, but when we get back, struggling to preserve a way of life on Maryland's Smith Island. It is the closest thing to heaven I'll ever get to on this earth. It's just ahead right here on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today we're shaking off this winter's cabin fever and busting out some of our favorite stories from the great outdoors. We've already strolled through the National Arboretum, we've hiked the Appalachian Trail, and in just a bit we'll head out on the Chesapeake Bay. But to kick off this part of the show, we're going to go back in time, way back in time, to something like, I don't know. 220 million years ago or so? In other words, the late Triassic Age. Triassic Age. Yeah. Is that before or after the Jurassic Age? Uh, before. Yeah. And according to the guy we're walking with here? My name is Garrett Peck. I'm the author of The Potomac River, A History and Guide, which just came out. The late Triassic was a marvelous time in our region's history because it led to the formation of a rather distinctive local feature. One you can see in the Cap'n John Bridge, for instance, in some walkways and doorways of the U.S. Capitol building. And of course, the most famous is the Smithsonian Castle, right on the mall. The ancient feature in question is a bright red rock known as Seneca Red Sandstone. Another building building made with Seneca red sandstone. It has been torn down in the 1970s, but it was there for about a century, was the D.C. jail. What became of that stone when the jail was torn down? Some of the stone went into the Smithsonian's collection, should they ever need to repair the Smithsonian castle. So it's like a secret stockpile somewhere? Do you know where it is? Not specifically, but I could probably find out if you gave me about two hours. <laughs> Listeners, we'll get back to you on this one. <laughs> and we will, I promise, on some future show, so... Stay tuned. For now, though, it might be helpful to let you know where we are right now. We're right by the Potomac River in Maryland at Seneca Creek State Park. We're not too far from the Seneca Quarry. That's where all that super durable sandstone came from. To approach the quarry, you head down the CNO Canal towpath right around mile 23. So how far are we from the quarry now? Uh, We are almost in the quarry. Yeah, it's very close. But here's the thing. You'd never know how very close it actually is. See, the quarrying operation closed around 1900. More than a century later, thanks to Mother Nature and Father Time, you can barely see the quarry for the trees. The trees are very, very, very thick, and and the ground is covered in brush. Although back in the day, all of this, this growth, these trees, this brush, not here, right? There wasn't probably hardly a single tree here at, at all. I mean, this was an industrial operation. And what an operation it was. Garrett Peck says the place was clattering with hammers and buzzing with drills as early as the 1770s. Then, when the CNO Canal's Seneca section opened in 1830, things really took off now that workers could float tons of stone to Washington each day. But, as Peck points out, as the turn of the century approached, things began 
to change. For one thing... The Sino Canal declined. And eventually... There was a major flood, and that, that shut the thing down. That was in 1924. The quarry, of course, ceased operations before that. But in any case, people also had begun moving away from red sandstone and gravitating toward other kinds of stone, like granite. Before an era of big ships and railroads and so on, you kind of dealt with the rocks you had locally... But now we can get granite in our homes. Well, gosh, you can get it from North Carolina, you can get it from New Hampshire, and you don't really care. Hence, again, the Seneca quarries decline. But the overgrown cliffs aren't the only evidence of this downfall. If you veer off the CNO towpath and hike toward the quarry itself... Oh, we'll walk uh, right here, just a little ways. You'll approach a veritable shell of a building. It's like you think you're somewhere in ancient Rome. You know, I was just thinking that. It's bright red sandstone, about half the length of a football field, and was once the Seneca stone-cutting mill. Though looking at the roofless ruin with its decrepit walls, its hollowed-out windows and doorways, you'd be hard-pressed to identify it as such. Seriously, I would never know this was a mill. Yeah. I mean, it's not protected. It's not particularly well-preserved. And there's also a little bit of graffiti. A little bit of graffiti. Apparently Nick was here. Yeah, Nick was here. As for the record, was someone named Kevin. Their spray-painted scrawls join a host of others on the crumbling mill, which Garrett Peck predicts eventually will crumble away altogether. Unless it's preserved, which means that someone has to be proactive about shoring up the building. We don't know if there's any movement afoot to do that. The state of Maryland um, and I believe the Sino Canal, they've had a plan going back to the 1970s to do something with the quarry, to build some kind of visitor park or something, and they just never had the funds to do it. Just really too bad. I think this would be a great park, and especially after seeing what Stafford County has done with Government Island. Government Island is the Virginia quarry that provided a quiet sandstone for a bunch of famous projects, including the White House and the U.S. Capitol. Stafford County recently transformed the old quarry into an archaeological site and park. It's a great place to go watch birds, and they've got signs all over it. You can walk among all the quarries. It's, it's really, really cool. So A-plus to Stafford County for doing that. Whether Montgomery County will receive similarly high marks remains to be seen. In the meantime, Peck hopes more people will learn about the Seneca Quarry, or at least learn it exists. We've passed a few people here on this path, um, some joggers, some dog walkers, a guy on a bike. Do you think they have any idea about the history of, I mean, what they're walking by, what they're jogging by, what they're biking by? I doubt anyone knows. There's not a sign to explain, hey, this is the place where the Smithsonian Castle was cut. But so much significance of our nation's history, of our capital city history, came about here through this quarry. This quarry that Garrett Peck, for one, views as a regional treasure, a gem, a near-forgotten diamond in the tried and true rough. You can hear more of Garrett Peck on next week's show when we dive into his brand new book, Capital Beer, A Heady History of Brewing in Washington, D.C. So stay tuned. Once upon a time, you dressed so fine, threw the bumps of dime in your prime. Then you, people call, say beware, doll, you're bound to fall. You thought they were all kidding you. We'll venture off the mainland now and onto the water, to the middle of the Chesapeake Bay. That's where you'll find Smith Island a place most famous for Maryland's official state dessert, the many-layered Smith Island cake. But if climate scientists and sea level rise experts are correct, Smith Island may soon be famous for something else, disappearing. Back in September, environment reporter Jonathan Wilson brought us this story on the community's fight to defy the odds. 56-year-old Chris Park sits across from me in a booth at Peaky's Restaurant in Princess Anne, Maryland. 
The warmth he radiates comes with an unmistakable sadness. I ask him about the hint of despair in his voice, and he says it's simple. He's a Smith Islander who isn't, for the moment, living on Smith Island. Last October when Hurricane Sandy uh, hit, uh, this may sound crazy, but the only place I wanted to be was on the island. You know, that I mean, I've been through hurricanes there, and you know, uh, I, I felt bad that I wasn't there. Park's health forced him off the island, and it remains the only thing keeping him on the mainland. He's a recent cancer survivor and went through much of the ordeal on the island, working a job without health benefits, something he doesn't want to repeat. I've been going through cancer without health insurance. I needed to find a job with benefits, and fortunately, I was able to do that. He now works for Somerset County's planning department and lives in Crisfield, a 25-minute boat ride from his beloved island. The prognosis on his cancer is good, but his own prognosis on the place he loves is far from optimistic. The shoreline is eroding, has been for a long time, and it is starting to put houses, some of the infrastructure like roads, in jeopardy. According to the Army Corps of Engineers, parts of the island's shoreline are washing away 8 to 12 feet each year. The island has lost more than 3,000 acres to the sea over the past 150 years, shrinking its land area by more than half. And Parks is just as worried about the erosion of the island's human population which hovered between 700 and 800 during his childhood, but now sits at 276, according to the latest census numbers. Out of this year's high school graduating class, out of, I think, the four that graduated, three have left for college, one's going to try and stay there and become a waterman. Those are not good odds for the future. To see Smith Island for myself, I recently hitched a ride on the Island Bell 2, an official U.S. mailboat owned and operated by Captain Otis Tyler. Tyler is reticent to be interviewed at first, but all I have to do is ask him about Smith Island's supposedly bleak future and the floodgates open. People saying we're sinking. We're not sinking. The erosion's getting us, but we're not sinking. I mean, if we're sinking, the whole East Coast is sinking. And as far as Tyler is concerned, Smith Island will stick around despite a lack of attention from those in a position to help. You know, we got a governor that's never been here. This is eight years he's been our governor. He's never stepped a foot on Smith Island. He don't care for us, and we don't need to care for him. Once you're on the island, the first stop for many tourists is the Bayside Inn, where you can grab a bite to eat, including a slice or two of Smith Island cake. Rebecca Kitching is a waitress at the Bayside. She just turned 16, so she's one of those young people the community would desperately like to retain. But she wants to be a teacher, and she says that means her future looks brightest off the island. There's not really much of a life to live here. I mean, you can't, there aren't a very, very big variety of jobs. Here it's basically the men crab, the women pick, or find other little small jobs, so there's not too much to do. To kill some time on my visit to the island, I rent a golf cart from the bayside and tool around Ewell, the island's main harbor. The skies are stunningly clear, and the only thing to spoil the sunny quiet of the day is the occasional biting fly buzzing around my head. On days like today, it's easy to see why Smith Islanders would have such a hard time accepting that the same dark blue waters that have supported their way of life could also be the engine of the community's demise 
It's simply beautiful out here. But University of Maryland professor Ed Lenk, a world-renowned expert on sea level rise and climate change, says though the science is still uncertain, the data point in one direction for Smith Island. Environments like the Chesapeake Bay that have a lot of land that is close to sea level in an environment of, of rising sea levels and perhaps stormier conditions, they're in for some bad times. And we need to start planning what is pragmatic to do about that right now. Just how quickly Smith Island is washing away may be up for debate. But for Chris Parks, perhaps all the arguments over erosion rates, seawalls, and state assistance for Smith Island are beside the point. On a regular basis, I find myself driving down to the water and looking at it over so I can see the island, just, just to know that it's still there and that, you know, if and when I can get back, it'll still be there. That, that's, uh, that brings me more peace and comfort than anything else in my life. It is the closest thing to heaven I'll ever get to on this earth. So while Parks may be a realist when it comes to the future, he's most certainly a romantic when it comes to the only place that's ever felt like home. I'm Jonathan Wilson. So for the watermen of Smith Island, fishing and crabbing are a way of life. But here in D.C., that way of life can sometimes seem a bit remote. Unless, that is, you're one of the local kids who learned all about hooking the big one on the banks of the Anacostia River last summer. As Lauren Ober told us back then, thanks to this new program, these young people are also gaining an appreciation for the river and its crucial role in the region's ecology. If you want to catch a fish in the Anacostia River, or really anywhere... There's one thing you need to have. Patience. 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 Yep, patience. But that's not something many kids have much of. That's why the Anacostia Youth Fishing Program run by a local nonprofit, the Earth Conservation Corps, is so remarkable. If the kids want to hook a fish, they have to be patient. There's no way around that. They expect to catch a fish immediately. I tell them, you know, it may be 5, 10, an hour, or you may not catch a fish at all. That's Jesse Moore, a professional bass angler from Columbia, Maryland, who helps out with the program. But you have to have patience, and then that patience that you, you get out here, or that's instilled in you out here, take it over into your everyday life. Moore looks more like a college running back than a fisherman, which may be why the kids connect so well with him. Plus, he knows what he's talking about. He's been fishing since he was their age and has been a pro for the past five years. His passion for fishing is infectious. You know, this is opening the door up to new activities, and, and hopefully they can take this and pass it on to their friends in the neighborhood or you know, take it into their adulthood and pass it on to their children. So that's the whole objective of being out here tonight. It definitely beats being inside playing a video game or hanging out in the neighborhood. This is the first year for the pilot program. Just about every Friday night this summer, kids from the D.C. region have gathered along the banks of the Anacostia River at Diamond Teague Park, just a stone's throw from Nationals Park. Mike Bolander, the Anacostia River keeper, says there are few opportunities for city kids to access fishing. And that makes a program like this critical. Us being able to facilitate that gives kids a chance to build awareness and then 
you know, that awareness is going to lead to behavior change. These kids are going to grow up and care about the river. Most of the 20-odd kids who are out on this Friday night trying to hook a catfish don't have much experience with the river, even though many of them live in neighborhoods that border it. This program is trying to change that. You don't protect something until you love it, and you don't love something until you know stuff about it. You don't know something unless you, you see it and experience it. That's Trey Sherrard, a biologist who works with Mike Bolander. He sees the fishing program as a way to transform the river from an abstract concept to a real living thing. So every line baited, every fish caught, every piece of trash spotted floating on the river's surface becomes a teachable moment. Tonight, a couple of giddy middle school girls from Suitland, Maryland, are getting help setting up their fishing poles. Sherard takes a piece of bait and spears it with a hook. The bait looks like a marble-sized piece of putty and smells like the most unappetizing sausage ever. Here you go, ladies. So reel it until it just barely becomes tight. And once the line is straight, so you can give it a little more. Perfect, right there. So now you can watch the tip or you can keep a finger here. Okay. And you'll feel a, sort of a bounce. You'll either see it or feel it. So you don't need to watch the line. The tip itself will kind of bob up and down real quick. Thank you. Of course. The girls follow Sherard's advice, but the fish just aren't biting today. It's windy and the tide is strong. Still, Destiny Bolden and her crew seem to be having a good time. What I like about fishing is that we out the house and we get to do something for the environment. This program is catch and release, so anything that lands on a hook goes back into the river. Biologist Trey Sherrard says people shouldn't eat fish caught in the Anacostia, though lots of folks do. The river has several toxic hotspots filled with chemicals that can have serious developmental effects on children and pregnant women. On this particular evening, 11-year-old Catherine Hilliard of Southeast D.C. is having no luck at all nabbing a fish. But all this waiting around for a bite isn't the worst thing ever. She's goofing with Kate Harder, a freckle-faced six-year-old who lives near the U Street corridor northwest. They're giggling and getting occasional pep talks from Jesse Moore, the pro. And whether they realize it or not, they're learning. Do you have any words of wisdom about fishing that you want to tell people? Be patient. And if you're not patient, then what? You go quit. You go quit. And you will never catch a fish if you quit. I'm Lauren Ober. But for real, when are you going to catch a fish? I ate like an hour. You mean have to wait for an hour till you catch a fish? I think. <laughs> Next, getting the scoop on D.C.'s historic, but little-known, boundary stones. Local residents come up to us and say, is that a gravestone? What is that? That story and more coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're celebrating the end of winter and the start of spring with a show we're calling Cabin Fever. In just a bit, we'll take a look at America's quintessential springtime sport, baseball, and we'll head out to Rock Creek Park to meet a guy known as the district's Birdman. 
But first, we'll bring you a story we first aired in 2012. Now, if you've ever looked at a map of D.C., you've probably noticed that the boundaries of our nation's capital form a diamond. These days, that diamond is technically missing a corner in the southwest. That's the piece of land that Congress handed back to Virginia in the 1840s. But that diamond was whole back in 1791 when it was created by a surveying team led by Major Andrew Ellicott. Along that diamond's borders, Major Ellicott's team placed 40 stones, all made of sandstone from the Aquia Creek Quarry. That's the same place we got stones for the U.S. Capitol and the White House. The boundary stones, as we now know them, are the oldest monuments in D.C. and the first ever purchased by the federal government. Here's the thing, though. After more than 200 years, the boundary stones and the iron fences put up in the 1900s to help protect the stones have seen better days, which is why... Since 2010, a group of volunteers has visited the stones every May and October to do preservation work. In this case, whatever stays on can be painted over. Yeah, just keep uh, just keep scraping. Scraping off the fences, crumbling paint so it can be replaced with a rich hunter green shade. Um, I'm going to get more workers over here, though, because southwest number one and southwest number two are just about done now. So we'll get some of those volunteers and move them around. Okay. We're in northern Virginia at the edge of a yard off King Street at the stone site known as Southwest Number 4. And I want to see where I am on 5 and 6. Our volunteer wrangler here right. is Stephen Powers. Powers grew up in the D.C. area, and a handful of years ago, he decided to take his children to visit all 40 stones. As I started taking them to the stones, I got what I call stones fever. And I took over 3,500 photos of the stones and did condition studies of them. Since then, he's become acting co-chair of what has got to be my favorite acronym of all time. NACABOSCO. Which stands for? The Nation's Capital Boundary Stones Committee. It's made up of close to 30 different groups, local governments, historical societies. Not to mention organizations like the American Society of Civil Engineers National Capital Section and the Daughters of the American Revolution, who actually first put up those Nakabasco seeks to do two things. One, raise public awareness. And two, unite the boundary stones under one owner. The federal government. Because currently, the stones on the Maryland-D.C. border fall under the auspices of DDOT. The District Department of Transportation. Which says it doesn't have funding for restoration or preservation. And in Virginia... When the government retroceded the lands, also retroceded the stones. So the Virginia stones are all owned by that individual land owner. Many of them are in private yards. One of them is in a church parking lot. And the owner of that land actually owns those stones. So right now, Nakabasco is working on an application to submit the stones for National Historic Landmark status. That would create federal funding and an ownership, and these stones would no longer be orphaned and forgotten and would lead to them surviving for future generations to enjoy. Because in a way, it's kind of shocking this generation has been able to enjoy the stones, or the ones that remain, I guess I should say. See, originally there were four cornerstones and then nine stones on each 10-mile leg. Thus there's 40 sites and stones. But four of those sites no longer have their original stones. Instead, one is a plaque. Two feature replicas. And the final stone is actually in storage, and we're hoping to get that one back into the ground. So 37 of the original stones actually still exist. And boy, have those stones been through a lot. Stephen Powers says some were used for 
target practice during the Civil War. A southwest number four was repeatedly struck by farm plows, and a couple miles north... All right, so on to another stone. Yep, now this stone you can actually see engraving on. On Jefferson Street, just south of Columbia Pike. And here is number six right here. We'll go down and we'll make a U-turn and come back around. Southwest number six was hit by a car. We're actually, we're in the median right now. We're right in the middle of the median. The stone is in the median. That's why it was hit by a car back in 1966 and why it's broken in half. We'd like to see this median actually widened, maybe put some more protective bollards or something around it so that another accident wouldn't happen in the future. That would, of course, require some major engineering. So Powers says it's a good thing the American Society of Civil Engineers National Capital Section is on board. The organization hopes to designate the Boundary Stones an ASCE Historic Civil Engineering Landmark. It also hopes to design and raise funds for a public park at the East Cornerstone. The West Cornerstone, south of West Street in Falls Church, already has a park named for Major Andrew Ellicott. But otherwise, Stephen Powers says, the Boundary Stones are largely forgotten. People either pass right by without noticing, or if they do notice... Local residents will come up to us and say, is that a gravestone? What is that? When we tell them what it is, they get very excited by it. And the hope, he says, is that the federal government will get excited too. And hey, maybe even come down with a case of Stone's fever itself. If you'd like to visit all 40 Boundary Stone sites, or at least see a map of where they lie, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Time now to go out on the coast. And get the latest from the eastern shore of Maryland and coastal Delaware. And what's happening right now, or will be pretty soon, is baseball. Salisbury, Maryland is home to the Delmarva Shorebirds, a minor league team affiliated with the Baltimore Orioles. But the team's stadium is aging and needs several million dollars in repairs and upgrades. Brian Russo caught up with the Shorebirds' general manager, Chris Bitters, to talk about the proposed renovations and who would pay for them. You know, there's structural stuff that, you know, a 20-year-old facility um, needs to have just to be structurally sound for another 20 years. There's player-related stuff, field, field lights, things to keep compliant with minor league baseball, major league baseball, and just things, again, in that world that age over 20 years and, and need to be updated moving forward. And then there's the third bucket, which is the most visible stuff, which is the fan amenity stuff. Mm-hmm. Things like video board, potentially some new seating options, uh, potentially some sort of wraparound concourse decking that would uh, make the ballpark very uh, portable with regards to the fans and being able to view the game from different vantage points and just being able to um, and enjoy uh, you know, families with young children if they're bored after a couple innings, being able to go ahead out and watch the game for a little bit from a drink rail or something out in mm-hmm. left field and um, being able to uh, just make the ballpark a lot more mobile in that regards. Um, you know, things like video board and some technology updates that uh, fans kind of expect nowadays when you go to a, a minor league or a major league game and just some of the enhancements there with being able to provide up-to-date statistics and stuff mm-hmm. through technology that's available now that we just currently don't have. When you look around at other stadiums in the league, 
you know, we've talked about before where, you know, the capacity here, about 5,000 seats and, and, and spectators, um, that's about, you know, somewhere in the middle uh, in your league um, as far as capacity goes. Where does this stadium rank as far as what's offered to people coming to the ballpark as well as the, the quality of the field um, as per other teams in the league? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that in general, um, you know, we're we're probably in the middle of the road. I mean, there's some stadiums that are a little newer than us that have some of the amenities that we're looking to, you know, as the report indicated that potentially would be recommendations for this facility, both from an entertainment standpoint and a player standpoint. Um, you know, the field out there, we make it nice and green, and it looks pretty to the casual fan that's just sitting in the seats, um, but it has some drainage issues and other things that need to be addressed that are, are more than a short-term fix. They're long-term solutions that need to be addressed. Um, wall padding for the players, things that are required through our relationship with Major League and Minor League Baseball um, that we need to investigate and, and look to address. And again, as you said, the fan amenity stuff that, um, again, Purdue Stadium has been a great stadium for now going into 19, extra 20 years. Um, it's, 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 it's lived well. Um, and, and really what the report is, is indicating is that these, these possible upgrades that they're proposing that to be considered, um, you know, would keep us kind of current and, and where we need to be um, for another 20 years. So, Of course, there's the consideration that you might get all of it or you might get none of it, or somewhere in between. Talk a little bit about what's being discussed here on the early end, and obviously we are in the early innings of this conversation, about how it's going to be paid for, private money, public money, a combination of both perhaps. Yeah, I mean, that's really a discussion that's going to start here moving forward now that, you know, the first step was to, as with anything, is to analyze what you have, and what somebody would recommend you need moving forward to be a viable facility. Mm-hmm. Um, so that part is, you know, taking place. It's taking time to get to there, get that study done. And, you know, so here's what's been put out on the table. Yeah. Um, and so now really the next step is to sit down with the partners involved in the facility and say, okay, you know, let's re- reevaluate those recommendations and develop some ideas and plans on how to do that forward. To, to this point, it, it's, that's not happened. Um, this is that's that's kind of the next step. First step was getting the study done. You know, similar to taking your car to a mechanic, you take it in, say, hey, what needs to get done so I can my car's going to last me for another period of time. Um, you know, we're not looking to um, you know tear down the stadium or rebuild or anything like that. We're just looking to take the car to the mechanic, figure out what what needs to happen, and then you know be able to assess it and develop that plan moving forward. Right. So. Now, of course, as you as you assess the future of this facility and what it's going to look like moving forward, the lease between uh, the stadium and and this organization is up next year. Mm -hmm. And there has been concerns sort of and, and maybe they're warranted, maybe they're not, that if these improvements aren't made to this stadium, that the franchise might consider leaving this area. Is there a possibility that the Delmarva Shorebirds may leave this region? Yeah, I mean, that's not been our goal or our intent. Um, you know, we've been, uh, you know, started this process rolling for a period of time now, obviously, to get to this study. Um, you know, our goal, we love it here. We have a great relationship and a partnership with Wicomico County. Um, we get tremendous fan support for our market size, and um, we feel like we're a, a great family destination for entertainment here in Wicomico that draws people in from the entire region, Delaware, Virginia. And uh, our, our goal is, is to stay here. We're not, we're not necessarily looking to um, relocate or anything like that, and that's why we, we initiate this process mm-hmm. well in advance of our lease expiring. Everybody at the table understanding that, hey, we want to make sure, you know, um, there's this great asset for the community. Our goal is to stay here, and, you know, that's where we're at for now. That was Chris Bitters, the general manager of the Delmarva Shorebirds, speaking with WAMU's Brian Russo.
And now we go from shorebirds to, well, actual birds in D.C.'s Rock Creek Park. A district resident named Wallace Kornack has been documenting migrant birds in the park ever since he retired from his nuclear engineering job more than a decade ago. On a Saturday morning last May, Emily Berman tagged along with the unofficial president of D.C.'s birding community and brought us this story. The list-making begins around 6.30 in the morning. At the bridge, I heard great crested flycatcher, wood thrush, oven bird. This is Cornac's friend, Bill Butler. He arrived early today, and in the 10 minutes he's been waiting, there's been a lot of bird activity to report. Titmouse, chickadee, pileated woodpecker. While Cornac takes down these first few sightings, Butler explains that Wallace Cornack is the most hardcore birder in Washington, D.C. He's been out here nearly every day, rain or shine, for the past 13 years, ever since the day he retired. And so we do this basically with Wallace being the center point, and the rest of us radiate out from him and tell him what it is we see or hear. We walk down Ross Road and into an open clearing called the equitation field. Then we begin to listen. The other thing about this birding is you have to have exceedingly great patience. It's, it's going to be quiet for quite a long while. So we wait. And after a few minutes, figures emerge in the distance. They're wearing rain boots, hats, and large binoculars. The birders are arriving. Uh, this is Chip Chipley. Chipley lives in Fairfax, but comes here during the migration season, he says, because even though it's in the middle of the city, you just can't beat Rock Creek Park. This park is better than anything in Virginia. You can see more different species here in a shorter amount of time. Cornack walks around, saying hello to everyone and making sure he has their names. In his list, he likes to give credit to the birders who first spotted each bird. I appreciate a good birder. I want to know who they are. They know me, I know them. There's no published meeting time for the group. It grows mainly through word of mouth. During the week, there are just a handful of birders. But on the weekends, especially during the spring and fall, there can be quite a flock. This can be quite a scene. Sometimes there'll be 50 people here. Lisa Shannon comes here every week. She got into birding in her 30s and likes joining Cornac to learn from more advanced birders. Though, she jokes, a lifetime of birding can make someone so accurate, it's ridiculous. I mean, these people who started when they were 10 or something are amazing. They say, oh, that chip note up there is obviously a female scarlet tanager that just came here from Mexico. I can smell the tacos on her breath. (laughs) Taco breath aside, the warblers everyone's looking for really are making their way up from Mexico. They're here in D.C. for just three or four weeks as they head north toward Canada. But after an hour of looking and very few warblers, Cornac migrates to his second location, the maintenance yard. The group walks down a path to a place that looks like it should be off-limits. There are heaps of sand and dirt, old fences and bulldozers. Wallace Cornack spots someone in the distance. It's Matthew Saleo, a grad student at the University of Maryland. Matt, how is, how is everything? Matt's carrying a camera the size of a NASA telescope. He's been up here taking photos of birds all morning and has seen a lot. Two black-throated greens... One yellow warbler, maybe ten yellow rumps. Cornack adds these to his list, which, as soon as he gets home, he types up and sends to an online database called eBird. It's run by Cornell University. And because birders use it all over the world to look at migration patterns, Cornack's pretty careful about which observations make the cut. 
Sometimes I report it, sometimes I don't, depending on the credibility of the birder, the experience of the birder. I uh, use my judgment. But uh, most of these people right here are very experienced birders. Paul Pisano joins Cornac on the weekends and also happens to be the peer reviewer for the eBird entries from D.C. For him to take the time every day to be out here and capture what's being seen and then take time to put it into the, into the system, I, mean, I think that's, that's really an incredible quality. The group is now leaning against a fence, chatting and pointing their binoculars up into the trees for any final identifications. Today was not a big day, Kornak says. But still, there are dozens of birds on the list. There are disappointing days, a lot of those, but there are very exciting days, and that's what brings you out every time. It's the unexpected uh, appearing before your eyes. And that might happen today, or it might happen tomorrow, maybe sometime next week. But no matter when it happens, Wallace Kornak will be there to jot it down. I'm Emily Berman. Got a short time to stay and a long time to be gone. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Lauren Ober, Brian Russo, and Jonathan Wilson. WAMU's Managing Editor of News is Memo Lyons. Metro Connections Managing Producer is Tara Boyle. Our Editorial Assistant is Lauren Landau. Our Intern is Tyler Daniels. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU Engineering and Digital Media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll go theme-free with a Wild Cards edition of the show. We'll hear about the D.C. nonprofit that's transforming from an average-sized organization to a major museum. We'll explore the problem of wage theft and what can be done to keep employers from swiping workers' money. And we'll get schooled on D.C.'s sudsy history. Everybody in recent memory forgets that we had this lengthy brewing past that went all the way back to 1770. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.